Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. This is not your host, Ashley Low Blessingame, as you can probably tell, although she gave me full permission to borrow her tagline because you guys love it so much, so we can't leave it out. This is your producer, Christiana Kimmick, and I'm so happy to be back here in the booth with you. Ashley is away from the booth, and so I will be doing your intros for the next two weeks, but we send her our love. We love you, Ash, and don't worry, she is doing the interview, so (laughs) you'll hear her voice in just a minute. Today's guest is Pete Carraher. Pete is a stay-at-home dad of two boys, one who's a senior in college and the other who is in a high school transition program for special needs kids. After years of working to support his family, he and his lovely wife, Lee, decided to do the untraditional role reversal for 22 plus years. So he ended up staying at home and she worked to support the family. Pete struggled to find his new identity as a stay-at-home dad and his drinking progressed for years until he was confronted with possibly losing his family forever. Pete and his family now live in northern Wisconsin, and he enjoys, spoiler alert, an alcohol-free life, and he is focused on his family. You guys, this is an incredible story, and not because super huge events happened in this story, um, but because of, as you'll hear later, Pete's sheer willpower to become sober for the love of his family. You know, as always on the Courage to Change podcast, we want to give you guys a variety of stories where people have gotten sober through a variety of resources or avenues, and Pete's story reflects that. Um, Pete is amazing. Uh, He is a longtime friend of the Loeb family, and uh, we really think that you're going to enjoy this one. So please stay tuned for Ashley and Pete (laughs) in episode 89. Let's do this. Okay, well, Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. You are you are in Wisconsin, what part of Wisconsin? Eau Claire, Wisconsin. It's western western Wisconsin. It's like an hour. I'm an hour from Minneapolis. Okay. Okay. So I, I take it it's cold. Well, no, it can be. It can be very cold. Yeah. Is it but cold it, right you, now? No, nah, it's like uh, today we got a little heat wave. It's like 42. Oh, it's a heat wave. Yeah, it's warm. It's warm. I mean, uh, <laughs> we, we haven't had, we only had one dose of snow in October and we haven't had any snow or anything really? then. Yeah. So, wow. um, but it's going to start getting cold next week. You know, okay. like during the day, it's like in the 20s and then at night it's like double digits. It's not bad. January, February, that's when, you know, minus 20, that kind of shit. I mean, oh man, your, 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 um, your standards have changed from California standards. I guess they have to. I mean, it's nice because you get the seasons and I'm not going to, this is going to sound terrible, but like every day is the same in San Mateo. You know, it's sunny, it's beautiful. Your change is you go to the beach and maybe you foggy there, but. You know, here, you know, every day can be different. And right now it's on the stretch of like the same. Yeah. But, you know, when it, when it snows, we, we haven't lived in the snow. This is only our second winter. So we're like little kids. We're like, this is awesome, man. <laughs> you know, everybody else is like, get me the fuck out of here. I want to go to Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So we'll, we'll, we'll ask you in five years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Let's <laughs> see <laughs> five years. At least we can leave if we have to. Well, when things get better, we'll be yeah. able to leave if we want to. It's crazy how 
so much, at least I don't know if you've experienced this, but my guess is with Lee too, so much of our lives are now planned around the idea that we can travel, that we can leave. And the driving distance is a new thought pattern now when you think about that, because, you know, I, I used to think of things as our flight to our flight. Yeah. Like flight time. And when I start to think about drive time, it's a whole new world. See, I like to drive. I mean, I've driven back and forth to Wisconsin, like probably 17 or 18 times. Oh, wow. So I, love, I love the, being on the road. I miss that being able to drive somewhere, like go see my dad in Kansas, see my sister-in-law in Chicago or something like that. So our world has shrunk, but that's, that's the way yeah. it goes. It's okay, yeah. man. I mean, we're, uh, like I said, we're healthy and we're happy. And I mean, Lee and I haven't spent this time, much time together ever. Yeah, I believe it. Ever. I believe know? it. Yeah. So, so it's a whole new world. Well, stuff. so tell me, how long have you been sober? It will be 20 years, July 19th. 20 years. Okay. Awesome. Coming up on 20. That's a long time. It's a long ass time. That's a long ass time. Okay. I want to jump into a little bit. You were born in Yonkers. Yeah. I didn't realize you were born in New York. I thought you were born in Boston. That's all Lee. She's the Boston connection. Okay. She's the Boston connection. Okay. So what was your childhood look like? So So you were not a military child, but you moved around a lot. Yeah, so my dad worked for a big oil company, and so when I was born, and six months later, he he got a job with the oil company. Can, can I say the name? Or, or yeah, yeah, he he got a job with Exxon Oil, and then they they transferred him to Okinawa, Japan, and so me and my sister went we went out there with my mom and set up shop for two years, and my other brother was born there. How old were then, you when you went to Okinawa? So I was uh, we we left when I was almost one. Okay, we moved there. Do you remember it? Not Japan. I do. I remember Kuala Lumpur when we moved there um, two years later. I remember a little bit of Kuala Lumpur. Um, I, I like to look at pictures and try to remember yeah. too. I, I mean, thank God for pictures. I mean, I would forget my life without them. So That's so true. It's, so um, I do remember going there, and, and I went to a convent school um, with nuns, and then I went to an international school. Um, and it was, I mean, Malaysia was a British colony, so it was, it was a very British place. And a lot of Muslims there. And uh, we, we came in right after this big communist insurgency in the 70s. And it was it was a pretty unique place to live. I mean, um, I don't know if I want to go back now. But <laughs> <clears throat> my sister went there on her honeymoon. Oh, wow. She, she said it completely changed. I mean, it's... Yeah. But we, we lived there. My, my dad, he got housing from the company. You know, we had people who, who helped us at home and... We used to go stay in their villages like once every couple months. They'd bring us home and, and we'd stay there for the weekend. But it was um, it was truly unique. And we traveled all over Asia. And, and then we used to come home to the States. Once a year, they would pay for us to come home. So we would come home to like Florida where my grandparents lived or we go to Chicago or something like that. So once um, oh, once a year they paid. But you did you yeah. come back more than once a year? No, it was always no. just once. Yeah, because back then, I mean, it was, you had to make a stop to get back here. Right, right. So it was a lot, a lot of flying. Yeah. So, and then I lived there for five years. And then 1975, my dad got transferred back to New York where their headquarters are. Yeah. And so we moved to a place called Briarcliff Manor, which is like 50 miles from the city, right on the Hudson River. So how old were you when you left Asia? I was uh, almost eight. Okay. So, so there is a really good memory up in, in there. And then, so you're almost eight and that's when you get back to New York. 
Yeah. Then we get to New York and, um, I, I vividly remember this. We got picked up at the airport and we're in this limousine and it's taking us to our hotel. And I see these kids playing football. And I go, I say to my dad, what, what, what game is that? What are they playing? He goes, well, it's kind of like rugby because we, we watched a little bit of rugby in Malaysia. And then we, a little while longer, I remember we seeing some kids playing baseball. I go, I go, dad, what, what are they playing? He goes, it's baseball. It's kind of like cricket. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and that was, I mean, I knew nothing of the United States when I moved Interesting. when I was eight. Interesting. So I was, uh, I mean, I was, I was the foreigner when I got to Briarcliff. I mean, even though I was a white guy, I mean, I still was kind of on the outs. I wasn't really, I wasn't born there. I never lived there. Yeah. So, um, That's a lot of adjustment. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't easy. I mean, when you move around a lot, you kind of start to feel like your, I mean, your family's like your base and, and there's, there's really nobody else that's really there because you just, you're going to leave in a couple of years. So, um, I, I mean, I've always felt that way. Like I always had this itch, like, where am I, where am I going next? Where am I going next? Right. So I moved here and I said, I'm staying here and this is where I'm staying. It's, it's been a really unique experience for me moving here. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's finally settled. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we lived in Millbrae for 19 years. Yeah. Long time. We only lived there for two years and we ended up staying for 19. And Lee hated, hated living there. Really? I, I didn't know how much she hated it till we moved to San Mateo. Yeah. He's like, I fucking hate living here. Oh, I wow. It. And I, and I felt really bad for her. But she did it because it was a good school district for Lee and he got lots of services. Yeah. And um, we were close to San Francisco. So her commute and the airport was close because she traveled all the time. And so that was the longest we lived in one place. And then, you know, we moved to San Mateo. And that's when we decided to move here to Wisconsin. And here we are again, kind of we're, we're on the outside because we're from California. Right. And, and we only know a few people, but it, it's just a different feeling now. It just really feels like home for us. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I literally go outside every night when I take the dog out before I go to bed I, and I look up and I go, thank God I live here. Oh, I, I love really that. Yeah, it's, it's a neat place. I yeah. think your dad probably says that when he's in Idaho. Yeah. We've talked about moving there a lot. Yeah. Um, and I per- always remember he's like, this is my, this is my happy place. This is where I feel best. Yeah. It's uh it's an interesting <laughs> thing. And for us too, I mean, that's why I got married there. That's why my sister got married there. And uh, it's, you know, you want to go, to places where it was a lot of happy memories. And and I think those are, you know, a lot of the time, those rural areas that we, those of us who live in the suburbs, we run away to. Yeah. The farm or to Idaho, right? Yep. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So you moved to, did you speak any other languages? Was the language? Yeah. When I lived in, uh, when I lived in Japan, I spoke a little Japanese. And when I lived in Malaysia, I spoke Malay. Okay. I, I mean, I don't remember any of it anymore. So, but you spoke English. So when yeah. you came, okay, when you came back and what was it like, what were your parents like? You know, my dad, um, you know, he's the old Irish Catholic guy from the South side of Chicago. He was, uh, he worked a lot and he, he's not the most loving person and he did the best he could. Yep. He's done the best he could. And my mom was, she was the center of our lives. I mean, she, um, and vice versa. You know, she, we were, me and my sister, and my two brothers were her world. Because my dad and my mom, I mean, they they stopped sleeping together a long time ago. You know, they slept in separate rooms, and my mom had her own kind of thing she was doing, and my dad did his own thing, and we kind of figured that was just the way things work. So, right, um, you know, my mom was the one was the go to person, and then my dad was the authoritarian who 
you know, who grounded me for a summer because he caught me drinking or, you know, or sneaking out or something like that. And, you know, he was strict, very strict. Yeah. Yeah. And were you, did you, were you raised Catholic? Yes. Yeah. Very Catholic. I'm a fallen Catholic now. (laughs) Recovering. Yeah. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, I went to Catholic uh, high school and Catholic college. Oh yeah. I, um, I, I was, I was stuck in there. So when you were growing up and very Catholic and you, your parents started sleeping separately, when you look back on that, do you, do you think that that was, um, better than divorce? Like, is you know, as it, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that they, um, I I remember having a conversation with my, my dad's sister, Mm -hmm. my aunt Joe, and I, and she told me, she goes, you know, your mom understands him. Yeah, because he's he he does his own thing, but they he she understands him and he understands her because my mom was super stubborn. She was tough, so they just kind of worked together and 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 took care of us and made sure we were okay. And then when we left, they kind of just did their own thing. You know, they were kind of yeah. living together but separate. So I think that that was not uncommon for that era. Yeah, and to yeah. me, it's not something I would ever want to do. Right. But it was not, what were some of the, you know, in, in, in my household, there was, you know, there was a lot of, I, I left with some major themes, you know, that were instilled in me. What were some of the major themes that were instilled in you from, from your childhood? I learned how to meet people by helping people like Hmm. doing things like working. So like when I moved to LA in 1980 from New York, again, I didn't know anybody. But down the street from my house was a, was a golf course. So I went down there every day and I would play golf and then I would hang out with the cart guys and help them. And I'm sure they took advantage of me, but they, they started giving me beer and they gave me cigarettes. And I was like, this is great, man. I, love, I mean, I was there every single day because that's where I felt like I fit in because I was doing something. I was, I was helping somebody or doing something. And I've always been, you know, Forever, always wanted to do something for other people. Um, I, that's my the love language, doing something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Acts so, of service. Yeah, and that's. Yeah. Uh, I hate being recognized. I just mm-hmm. I'm on the back. I like being in the background, just doing it. Interesting. So, Interesting. I think that's something my my parents really instilled in us about working hard and. Um, you know, showing up on time, being respectful. I mean, yes, man, no, no, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. I like to joke when I open a door for a woman, she'll say, oh, it's so nice of you. And I say, well, I can hear the spoon coming by my ear when my mom <laughs> she didn't hear me, so open the door for you. Right, so, right. Yeah, yeah. So that was, those were manners and, and the way of being in the world. The way to act, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I think that... Um, those were the really big things with my mom and dad that was super important to them. And then applying yourself, you know, so I was not the best student, not mostly because I didn't apply myself. I was fucking lazy, you know, and my dad, he, he was, you know, to his credit, he, he was an HR guy. He did HR stuff. Mm, okay. so he always told me, he's like, you know, whatever you do, you make sure you get a job that you love because you don't want to work in a place you don't like being. Yeah. And he was right. And I always remember that. And there's one of the few nuggets that I remember from him. So they were worthwhile at least. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that's why a lot of people, when you say like, when people talk about school and they talk about not applying themselves, I really think that the issue is more that lack of interest because my husband will say the same thing about school, but I've seen him want to learn about things and he just die. I mean, teach himself, you know, programming. I've seen him watch, oh my gosh, World War II documentaries till I wanted to die. Ken Burns, you know, just like, no, make it stop and read the books and all the stuff. So I've seen, you know, I, I see a lot of people talk or I hear a lot of people talk about like, oh, I, I wasn't that good at school or I, you know, I didn't. And I really think it's kind of what your dad said, which is, same line as a job. Like, are you interested in what they're teaching you? And same thing as, you know, with work, if you're not interested, it's really hard to apply yourself. So you moved, you moved to SoCal in the, in 1980 and that's yeah. when you moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. So we moved to Glendale Okay. and uh, G Gale. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I went to junior high public school, junior high for two years, hated every day of it. Why'd you hate it? Because I was the, I was the, I, that place. I was the real outsider, and, you know, Southern California, Glendale. These kids have all been together forever, yeah. and then in California, walks this kid who's who lived all, uh, all these different places, and I have nothing in common with them. Yeah. So, um, but once I got into high school, I went to Catholic high school, all boys, and that was uh, was that in Tokyo? Yeah, that was in okay. that was school in La Cañada. Okay. Yeah. So it was, uh, that was a good place for me. Um, I think if I had gone to the public high school, like my sister did, my sister was, my sister was a goody two shoe. I mean, she was dating a freaking you know, Bible banging guy in school and she never drank or anything. She saved that till later when she graduated. And so, <laughs> you know, I think if I had gone to public school, I, I just would have just kind of slid along and done the, ba- the bare minimum. But at, uh, at St. Francis, I had to work, work pretty hard just to stay ahead. So I thought it was a good place for me. When did alcohol uh, or su- or substance, you know, any kind of substances come into the picture for you? So I was talking to Lee about this. I remember the first time I met, the first drink I had was Christmas when I was in eighth grade. My mom made this really good eggnog with uh, four roses, whiskey, and brandy in it. And it was a kick, man. So I remember taking drinking a glass and then like drinking like five more and I was shit-faced. <laughs> and, and I, rem- I, I, I specifically it's not often it. I hear that people's first drink was eggnog. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was a premonition of how bad it was going to get. I guess. <laughs> so, and then when I was in high school, when I got to high school from working at the country club, I was hanging out with these guys who were older than me. They were 18, 19, 20 year olds. I was drinking there. I was smoking there. And so when I got to high school, I just kind of slid into that kind of group of people. Like I was on the golf team, and so I could get off the first tee, and by the second tee, I could light a cigarette, and we could have a beer or two on the way through. You know, every, that practice, it didn't really matter. So, and again, I didn't apply myself. If I had applied myself, I probably would have been a better golfer or better. Maybe I could have played football. I don't know. I was a big guy. So um, it was easy just to kind of slide into that drinking and, and doing, not being uh, productive. And I think that that's been, that's kind of my been my M.O., when I was drinking is that, um, you know, fuck it. It's easier. Just, I'll just get drunk and I don't really care what people think. And I, and I'm, I'm, I got a job, I got a place to live, you know, I'm doing okay. So, you know, I just, just kind of settle for the bare minimum. So I think that alcohol, I would surmise that alcohol was productive for you because it did something for you. Right. Like that maybe it's, 
maybe that that was the thing that that kind of worked for you and that was doing something for you. What do you think that it was doing for you? Because obviously there was there was a drive towards it. I think a lot of it, um, a lot of my drinking has come comes out of boredom. Mm. Yeah, like, yeah. When I used to, when I got bored, I would drink. Yeah, and, I get that. And I think it's kind of this. That was where I started to learn that in high school. Like if I was after school and I didn't have anything to do, I would just, you know, I would sit around and drink down at the country club. So I think that's what, that's, that was one part of it. And also the other part of it is that, you know, I didn't really care about much when I was drinking, you know, because, right. you know, I was, I was drunk. So, you know, I didn't care about how my dad would be mean to me or how I didn't never kissed a girl or, you know, anything like that. I just, I didn't care. Right. And that worked for me. Yeah. So it, it took away it. I mean, it took away the emotions that were, you know, difficult to deal with. It's interesting how, you know, I have, I have uh, almost four year old twin boys. And, and so anger is a topic in our house a lot. And I'm trying to coach them through anger. And by doing that, I recognize that number one, I don't know how to coach people through anger despite doing what I do for a living, counseling the whole deal. I'm like, I scream into a pillow, uh, you know, just trying to figure out like, I don't know what, you know, um, but that we, how little we are taught, you know, in our society about these huge emotions that come up that are going to come up. It's absolutely going to happen to all of us, but how to deal with them in a productive way. It's just not part of the conversation. I'm sure it wasn't in your home. And so, the thing about those big emotions is at some point we figure out what to do with them, whether that, you know, for, you know, what that is, because there's a threshold. We all have a threshold in order to be productive in society. And I think that a lot of times, a lot of times, you know, alcohol is just such a wonderful anesthetic for <laughs> all of those emotions that, you know, it's, it's not, you know, as I'm remembering, it is not easy to figure out like, okay, what, what, what's a productive thing to do when I have this feeling or that feeling. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, from what I know about, you know, Irish Catholic homes is that feelings are typically the only feeling that's typically acceptable is anger from what I understand. I, I think that's fairly accurate. Um, I think the idea of like not uh, talking is is a is a really big theme. It was a big theme in our family. I mean, it was like and silence. still it still is. I mean, just like silence you, or just like not talking about not the talking about big important the things. things. Yeah, you know, my parents never talked to me about sex. They never said talk to me about drinking or smoking or doing drugs. I just did them, and it, they they got mad, and then they would punch me. You know, and that was it. That was it. So, you know, I wish that, uh, I mean, it's the same for my brothers and my sisters. So we kind of just learned to be independent. You know, we had moved all over the world. We didn't have a base. So we, and we only had each other and then we had ourselves. I mean, that's the only way we learned these big things. Like you see, you know, about emotional things and the easiest way to, to kind of keep those down was to, was to have a drink. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very effective until it isn't, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, yeah. so, okay. So then was it expected that you were going to go to college? Did you? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And yeah, so yeah. then what was your, your college experience? So I, um, I only applied to two schools and one was Chico state 
in one of the St. Mary's, and luckily I took St. Mary's. Because <laughs> 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 I probably would have been a lot worse off there. <laughs> but uh, I ended up, uh, I uh, joined the rugby team as a freshman. So that was kind of like, uh, that was a great place for me because yeah. I could drink beer like nobody's business. Mm-hmm. And the community. And, and, yeah, and I was part of a team. And, and I was never, I'm not super uh, competitive, but I could be competitive enough to look like I cared when really I just wanted to drink beer and hang out. But uh, um, I I mean, college was, was fun. I mean, I learned a lot, but I also did, had some bad experiences with alcohol and and. I got in trouble a little bit and, but I always got out of it. And, you know, that's just pe- the way that people looked at me. You know, there's Pete, he's just drunk again. You know, it's no big deal. Mm. How often were you drunk? Uh, you know, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday kind of thing. Yeah. And, and so people definitely noticed like, oh, Pete's, like I you stood so. out. I don't think I stood out, but I was, uh, I was definitely one uh, who, who cocktailed more than others. Okay. Yeah. And then I had, so my first, one of the big instances I had was I was, I was drunk one night and I threw a Spanish tile off a fourth floor building Oof. and it, it luckily didn't hit anybody, but it landed on this car on this um, Camaro, this old Camaro. Right. <laughs> I'm like, so I just kind of like scurried like a rat and didn't say anything. Well, then they started to do like an investigation and the guy who, who car was, I mean, for the, for the love of God, the guy's an asshole. You know, I had, so I had to go like gravel to him afterwards because I knew yeah. I was going to be caught and I said, I'm sorry. And so, uh, I went to the, to the dean of students who was a priest and he, he tried to help me. He's like, just, you just got to fess up and pay for it. So, you know, I had to, I called my dad. I said, you know, dad, I did this. And I need to borrow some money. So he said, so this is when I was a junior and I wasn't 21 yet. So he said, well, if you, if you drink again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, take you out of school. I'm not going to pay for school anymore. Oh, wow. So I, I never drank at home. <laughs> but at school, I did. I mean, he's not going to check up on me there. Yeah. But I think that, that was a really big, that was a big event for me. Not only, like, financially, I also, like, got a job working in the food service, which brought me, started my career of cooking. And then I also had, so I was, I mean, I was, I went to Catholic high school. I went to, I went to mass all the time. I almost thought about, thought about being a brother for a little while. And, um, so <laughs> you were you know, an altar boy, right? I was, Oh yeah, I was altar boy big time. Yeah. But, um, so when I had, I, what I was doing when this event occurred, I was talking to this friend of mine, this, this girl who I was good friends with, but she was a slut. And I was like, you know, why are you doing this? You know, why do you do this to yourself? And I got so angry at her. That's when I picked it up and threw it off. Uh. And then I, so, so afterwards I'm like, you know, here I am. I think I'm trying to help somebody. And God says, well, you know, no, you, you threw this brick off and, and you're going to get in trouble. I mean, I, I just didn't see like, why, why wasn't he trying to help me help her instead I was getting punished for it. And I really lost, I lost a lot of faith in God and, mm. and the church. And I just went for fun. And, but that was really a, a, a defining moment for me because it just, here I am trying to help somebody and I get punished for it. Right. 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 So, so that was bad. And then I got, uh, I got in trouble for a, for a hazing incident and a couple other little things. And, and, but, it, you know, I survived. I graduated. Yeah. And, um, and I look back in terms of like a, a applying yourself. So, so when I was a senior, I really wanted to work for the government. I wanted to like work for the CIA or something like that. And, 
Um, so I, I applied and they, um, they took my application. They said, we'll go take a test. So I took a test and I passed the test. They said, well, we need you to fill out this 33 page application. So I got back like December of my senior year and I was getting ready to start rugby and I'm like, man, eh, fuck it. I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm just going to keep cooking. And then when I graduated, I didn't have really have a job, so but I knew how to cook. So I called a friend of mine who worked at a hotel and I said, Hey, you can get me in. She's like, Yeah, no problem. So I started cooking at this hotel. So it was like I didn't really have to apply myself. I just kind of slid my way in. I mean, I, I could do what needed to get done, but you know, I say to myself, Well, if I had finished that application, you know, maybe I would have done something different. What do you think is the reason you didn't finish the application? Like if you, you know, armchair theory, were I you think- afraid to fail? No, I'm good at failure. So um, I would never, I don't think I, you know, I, I think I was just lazy. I mean, literally, I mean, I was my senior year, I was playing rugby, we were drinking beer, we were having a lot of fun. I'm like, who gives a shit? I don't have to worry about this, you know? And I was never, well, my, you know, some of my friends were applying for jobs and internships and stuff. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go to work and go cook, you know? And that, um, that was easy for me. I always told myself, well, I don't want to sell insurance, so I'm not going to sell insurance. I'm going to go work in the kitchen. But it really wasn't. I mean, it was pretty easy to get in and, and start working. So, I, uh, you know, people who say that, they, you know, they don't have regrets are full of shit because, I mean, you always there's always something you're going to regret. And that's one of the things I really regret. But I didn't apply myself because that would have, I think my life would have been, you know, that way. You liked cooking. What was cooking like? And, you know, what was the, I mean, to me, it seems really easy how particularly coming from, you know, uh, some sort of alcoholism brewing at the very least into the food service world, you know, hours and, and lifestyle that seems very conducive to a drinking problem. That's where I learned, I became a professional drinker. You know, I was, I, I graduated and I worked at night. So I worked from three to midnight and I had a great group of friends there. So we all hung out together, the night shift people. We go to the bar at two o'clock, dance cocktail lounge from Walnut Creek. And then two o'clock to go back to my apartment at Walnut Creek till 4 a.m. Cocktail, fall asleep and then get up at 11, go to the pool and start all over again. I think I did it for, I remember we talked, we did 23 days in a row in December around Christmas because we were working a ton of hours. And I was young. I was so fun. I mean, I was having a good time. I met a lot of great people and, and sitting in a bar, shooting the shit and smoking cigarettes and drinking Manhattan's was pretty damn good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, Why stop? And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't have. No. And so that's, I actually got a DUI in uh, 1990. So I graduated in 89. I think it was 1991. So it was like a year after I graduated. I started working at the hotel. I got a DUI and it was a pain in the ass. And, you know, I'd start taking the bus to work and shit like that. But I ended up moving closer to where I work. But then I went to days. So I said, if I work days, I won't drink as much probably. I won't, I won't stay out all the time. Well, I would get up. I'd be at work at 5 o'clock and then I'd get off at 3. Yeah. But if I didn't go to bed by 10 o'clock the night before, I was cooked. I would be, I would, just couldn't deal with the day. So I would just start drinking like, you know, as soon as I got home from work. And I go to bed at like eight o'clock. So it was no big deal. Right, 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 right. So just all over. I mean, I think the thing that's the thing about alcoholism is we and, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about like we change our 
goals to meet our our drinking, our lifestyle, right? As opposed to changing your life to meet your goals. And a lot of, you know, I, I can think back to a lot of circumstances where I... I, I, like one time I had this big James Dean poster. I loved James Dean as a, as in high school and I had this big James Dean poster. And I thought if I can put my cocaine in the wall, <laughs> if I can store my cocaine somewhere, maybe I won't do it as much. Right. And so I took a hammer and I made a hole in the wall behind the James Dean poster and then cocaine became known as James Dean. And I thought like I, if I didn't have it on my person, I wouldn't do it as much. And these were like, and it never made it to the wall. Okay. No, so exactly, no. exactly. I mean, I don't know what, but like all these, you know, things I would try, like if I changed my drink, if I changed my interest, if I changed who I was dating, if I changed, it would, I thought that like it would, that would write the ship. Right. And and the reality was that I was rearranging the you know the deck chairs on the Titanic like it was just not it was not going to work. But I did I I get that feeling of like okay well if I work daytime hours that will be the trick. I mean I remember going to to parties and I'd walk in the door and this is up to the day I quit drinking. I mean I remember walking in the door I'd look I go okay I'm gonna get my drink first drink here yeah figure it out there afterwards I'm gonna go back to the bar over here. And we go back outside. I mean, I, I had it all planned out. Yep. What I was going to do. I didn't give a shit about anything else. I just, I mean, I, of course, I was talking to whoever I was, but, you know, I had, I had a plan. Yeah. You know? And I think that that's um, at the, uh, towards the end when I stopped drinking, it, it became this monkey on my back. You know, I just like, ugh. I'm at the party. I got to figure out where I'm going to drink and, yep. you know, and I'm going to drive home. Not drunk. make it look, you know, like I want to be there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so I mean, in some sense, I guess that that uh, that feeling of having a monkey in your back was helpful to me. That's kind of what started pushing me towards thinking about quitting. When I quit, it was it was it was basically you stop drinking. Well, you told me if you don't if you, if you drink again, I'm leaving you. And I'm like, I don't want you to leave me. I'm never going to drink again. And you know, I haven't drunk since. So, tell me, where did you meet Lee? So we met on a blind date. She hung out with my brother's rugby team in Pasadena in Southern California. And so his girlfriend at the time said, hey, you should introduce Pete to, to Lee. Because Lee would go hang out with the rugby guys all the time, drinking beer and hanging out. So I contacted her, we kind of played phone tag a little bit. And then she, she used to come to San Francisco for work quite a bit. So she came up one time and we, we met for, for, uh, for a hot date at North Beach Pizza and... Uh, the 30, 39th floor at the Marriott and hung out. And then, and then she, every time she would come up, I would pick her up at the airport and we'd go have dinner and hang out, go make out by the bay. And then she'd get on a plane and fly back to Southern California. So I would go down there sometimes to visit her in Manhattan Beach or she would come, come stay with me up in, up in Oakland. And, um, so she didn't know, or, or I should say, did she know what your drinking looked like? I don't because- think so. Because you guys were going, you kind of had that 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 cover. Yeah, she. I think definitely the the introduction of being together and being long distance was was helpful. She, I remember she she. We were talking about this. We went for a walk the other day, and she was telling me about one time my uncle was visiting and my aunt, my mom was here. Okay. We went out for like dinner and drinks, and I got tanked, shit faced drunk. And she was really pissed. 
and we were we went home and she's like you know you, you keep doing this i'm gonna leave you and i got like went to pieces please don't leave me please don't leave me. i was drunk and begging and that kind of shit mm-hmm. and i said please don't leave please and i was really upset and, and she didn't leave me thank god and and but my i kept drinking i just i don't even think i changed i mean i just just kept drinking yeah. And she she always says now that she's like, I had no idea you drank that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she probably did, but she just kind of thought, well, that's just who he is. Right. And then when he gets obnoxious and drunk and snoring, that's when he's a pain in the ass. And right. And, you know, then I can think something's going on. I think it's got to be when you don't understand the mindset. I mean, from talking to people who uh, don't struggle with addiction – I think it's so out of the realm of anything they can understand that what they see, you know, people say to me like, well, I only saw, you know, my brother so-and-so have three drinks. I'm like, yeah, he had 10 before he got here, guys. Come on. Like, you know, or there's, that's just unimaginable, right? Like, why would you do that? And so I think, you know, even when people see things, there's some sort of, there's just no uh, ability to understand what the reality of the situation is so i can i can i can see that but y- you did sh- so you did move in together and get married yeah she uh i remember the first day we moved in together she told me uh, like the next day she said i was sitting on the bed going what did i do what am i doing here with this? <laughs> you know, she lived in, this is the thing i tell people i she lived in the beach she lived a, bu- a block from the beach in manhattan beach she would go blading on the weekend she oh was, yeah she was hot i mean it was great, you know. And then she takes a job in in Redwood Shores, yeah, and and moves to Oakland, right? And well, and we should say we should say because now Oakland has some oh, nice yeah. parts. So we should say that this was in the nineties, and you didn't go to Oakland unless you needed some drugs. <laughs> you didn't. I mean, you just didn't. It was dangerous, and and it was not. It was. I mean, when I all, all my classmates from elementary school like moved to Oakland now, which is just yeah. hysterical. Yeah, like, I mean, when I, we were dating, I remember this, we, we were, um, we were hanging out in my apartment and I lived down near this park near MacArthur. It was, I mean, it was on the edge of the, the, the bad place. And, um, we're hanging out and I hear this pop, pop, pop. She goes, what's that? Oh, it's just firecrackers. Don't worry about it. Uh. You know, so then a couple of weeks later, we're sitting around, we're laying in bed talking all of a sudden pop, 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 pop. And I throw her down on the ground because it was close. It was real close. And she oh goes, those are fireworks. Where are they? I know there's a gunshot. Oh my god! So across the park, right across the street. So I'm like, but she's still. I mean, to her credit, we we didn't stay in that neighborhood. We moved to another place in Oakland. We rented a house together. She commuted from Oakland to Redwood Shores. Sometimes it would take her three hours to get home. I mean, I it was amazing. And then we did, we got married, and so I was I was still working in the kitchen. I was working at a country club. But when I, before I got married, I told her, I said, look, I said, I don't want to work all the time. You know, I'm going to spend time with you. So I decided to quit working in the kitchen, but I wanted to stay in the food business. Cause I like okay. food. So, excuse me, I got this job as a wholesale produce salesman in South San Francisco. And after we got married, we moved to Redwood Shores. So we were right by her office. We were on the peninsula. It was great. So I went to work there. I worked Monday through Friday, had the weekends off. You know, it was really, it was really good for us. And then when we started talking about having a family, you know, we, we, we talked about like, you know, somebody should stay home part of the time or all the time. You know, we, we, that was an a, a ongoing conversation right? that somebody would stay home. And 
when you look at uh, when we started to look at her, uh, her earning potential was much higher than me. She's always going to make more money than me. So I'm like, you know, when we did decide to have kids, I said, well, you know, I can take on a lot of it. It's no problem. You know, I don't mind. And so that was my way of giving back. You know, that was my way of, 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 uh, of uh, contributing to the family. So we got married and then that was 1996 and then Michael was born in 1998. And then Liam was born in 2000 and Michael was going to uh, in-home daycare Okay. And then, um, and then Liam was born. We didn't know that there was something going on with him till later, but he was in daycare because I was working in the morning and then I would pick him up and then we would go do stuff. So with Liam, your second son, when he was born, n- there was no indication that anything was wrong. You know, he had a really difficult birth. His, his umbilical cord tore and he wasn't really breathing when he came out. I mean, it was a difficult birth, but... You know, he went to the NICU for, for half a day. And, you know, once we got him home, he seemed to be okay. But as he got older, you know, the milestones your kids are supposed to reach, like when they're supposed to roll over, when you're supposed to say their first words, it, it, it wasn't happening. You know, and, and actually it was my sister-in-law, who is a child psychologist, who said, you know, maybe you should get, get him assessed. So we took him to the Golden Gate Regional Center. At what said, age? So he was about... Maybe six or eight months old. Okay. okay. Young. And so we had them assessed and they said, you know, there is some kind of, kind of delay and they offered us services. And, um, so Lee, she was, she kind of took it on her process. She, she took Liam to all his therapy stuff and did all that. And I was working and Liam, Michael was in, in home daycare and stuff. So it was, we were, we were, it was a new norm for us figuring out what we had to do with Liam and with Michael and, so um, they they both went to in-home daycare at this lady's house in Burlingame. So one day I go to pick him up, and she's fucking shit-faced, drunk. I go, Colleen, I go, what the hell is going on? Oh, nothing. I just changed my medication. I'm a little zingy. I'm like, seriously? She goes, and I, I knew. And so I told her, I'm not, I'm not bringing him back. Yeah. Forget it. Yeah. So I called Lee, and I said, she's drunk. We can never bring them back there. I said, I'm going to call my boss and quit right now and I'll just stay home. So I called my boss and told him, he said, okay, you know, you come back when you can. And that was the six months that I stayed home. <laughs> <laughs> the two kids. I mean, Liam was like, you know, eight or nine months old, maybe I think. Oh man. You know, Michael was uh, you know, two, almost three, maybe a little bit older. And, you know, I was, um, I was the only dad around. Yeah. I, I mean, me and I laughed because when I was, um, when they were younger, I tried to join the Burlingame Mothers Club. They said, no, you're a man. You can't be in this group. I go, what are you talking about? I take care of my kids every day, all the time. No, you're not a man. You can't be here. Okay. You know, so it was just me. And that was, um, it was hard. I, I really, I mean, I, the hard part was I like, I lost, lost my identity as, as, a, as, a, as a, as a person that worked all the time and helped people and had a good job and had fun. And all of a sudden here I am home all the time. And it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting. It was definitely interesting. And I learned a lot, but uh, you know, I I would take care of the kids all day. And as soon as they went to sleep, it was cocktail hour, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I went right to them. So you had a lot of a lot. So there's a lot of feelings, right? (laughs) That we just worked through, right? There's like, I mean, I'm having feelings just listening to it. And I want to start with the feeling, you know, 
of someone telling you that your child has cognitive delay and you had experienced a life of, you know, putting that stuff away, right? Putting the feelings away, drinking to help with the feelings, all of that. You get that information and now it's not just your feelings. It's also the feelings of your your wife, right? It's what did you do with those feelings? What happened for you? D- did that change you? I think when, when your child's first diagnosed with a disability, you, you, you have to go through this like process of grieving. And one of the first thing you say is why, you know, why, why does, why does he have a disability? You know, that I smoke too much, that I drink too much, that I do this. And then these like, that I eat too, drink too many diet Cokes. And it's like, you, know, you can blame yourself for days and you just go fucking crazy. And then all of a sudden I started thinking about, and this was when he started going to, when I started taking him to early intervention, it was like, who cares about the why? We got to take care of him. You know, it's not, he's not going to take care of himself. And, you know, nobody else is going to do it. Only we can do it. Me. Me. So I just turned around and said, what do you got to do? And I, and I became, I went to his early intervention. I was the only dad there. And, you know, when he got the pre, I got him into preschool. I did all the research. I did, you know, met the teachers. I mean, I was always there for everything, for all that stuff. Yeah. So, um, so I just, I, I, and I think that the drinking probably helps. I just worry about what do I have to do? I have to get him here. I got to do this. I got to do that. So I, I mean, emotions. You just put them aside. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm. You were on a mission. Yeah. I still, yeah. You know, and I still am. And, um, and so I don't have time for the emotions and I don't really know them. I didn't, yeah, it's a whole nother issue with me is that I just, you know, I don't really, I don't understand a lot of things about feeling, you know, like, I don't know. I ask myself sometimes, like, what is love? What does it mean? And I, I don't, I mean, I, to me, it's, just, I just want to be with somebody and help them and do stuff for them. I don't have like this deep understanding of love. And, you know, my dad's never told me he loved me. Never. Never. My, um, in fact, when Michael was in grade school. He was having some issues at school and we went to a therapist and he said, you know, he's like, you know, dad, you never told me you love me enough. So I said, my dad's never said he loved me once. So I say it when I, when I say it, I mean it. You know, I can't fucking stand people. Oh, I love you. I love you. I love you. That's bullshit. You say it when you mean it. And uh, I still don't know what it means. I mean, I think it means the feeling that you have right now, right? Is that deep feeling and also the feeling of that feeling of that mission, right? I think that's that's kind of the, because I don't know about you, but I've never felt that mission for someone I didn't love, <laughs> you know? And, and so I think that all of that is love. And when we're not taught how to do those things, you know, or what's norm, you know, that's, it's interesting, right? Because your dad never told you he loved you. And that that lesson and then what's the norm for Michael, right? And what's what's the, you know, how do you express that? And I think we get to change what happens from generation to generation. Like that's that's the gift. And I I don't I don't know if you know whether or not your dad loves you, but I'm pretty sure that your children I I'd I'd bet your children know that that you love them. I think so. You know, I think a lot of it comes too from from being raised a Catholic is that, you know, they didn't tell you they loved you. But they always told you you did something wrong when you did something wrong, when you were a sinner and you did something bad. And I think that that's, that's another, I mean, I never understood what love was with those guys because I was too busy getting punished because I was a sinner. Right. So I didn't, it didn't mean anything to me. 
And my mom, my mom really never told me she loved, she loved me either, but I knew she did. Right. With her, I knew she did for sure. She loved us all. Yeah. My dad, not so much. Yeah. You don't think that he had that capacity? I don't know. I mean, still to this day, I mean, my mom died two years ago, which was horrible. And, you know, he, he did not react very well. Like, I mean, he, I don't, I still don't understand my dad. You know, yeah. He's 85 and I'm 53 and I still don't understand him. You know, that whole, that generation of, you know, you know, my mom had a heart attack and she didn't tell us for like eight months, oh you know? And then my dad, my mom dies. He goes, Oh yeah, by the way, I'm, I have this uh, heart valve problem. When did you find out? Uh, two years ago. Like, what the fuck did you tell us? We would have helped you. Yeah. And I didn't want to put a burden on you. I'm like, okay, now you're doubling the burden off. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, thanks for nothing. Yeah. You know? so that was the, that was the generation, you know? I, right. I, I mean, unfortunately that's the way people, that's how they operate. And I don't agree with that at all. I mean, yeah. to an extent I do. I mean, some things, but you know, people are here, people are here to help you, you know, especially your family. That's the only people who really truly will help you no matter what. And if, I wish she had understood that. And my mom had understood that because that's what we would have done. Right. And they, you could have given them a different experience, right? Because yeah. they were going off of what they experienced. I mean, my mom was adopted. And so I don't, I mean, her, her adopted parents, my grandparents, they they were, they they did a great job with her as best they could. My grandma was not so nice to me. She wasn't quite so nice. My grandfather was a really great guy. And um, I remember I asked my mom one time, I said, hey, I said, hey, granny, I said, uh, did you ever want to find your adoptive mom? Yeah. She looked at me, she goes, fuck her. She just <laughs> left me in an orphanage. I don't give a shit. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. And now yeah. I know where you stand on that. Yeah. I, was, I mean, I, I got, but I totally understood that. It's heavy. Yeah. I mean, and her brother too. Her brother was adopted too. And he, he had a lot of issues. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, adoption, that's that, that stuff. I mean, it's better, right? Like it's like, which is better, but you know, there is, there is a lot that goes on for children when when their parent is not there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All we can do is love them, right? Yeah. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. I think you, you've had you know several unique experiences, but one of the experiences that I think is really interesting that you've had is the experience of being a, of what society typically looks like a stay-at-home mother and the difficulty and the pain that women, you know, talk about in those groups and that kind of thing. And, and how many men who are, you know, who are playing these, these, again, these typical roles do not understand the 
intensity and the pain and the loss of identity and the boredom and the all the things that come with that and and researching for you know it was when you said that researching and doing all the research like I had this flash of like me you know furiously researching reading every study figuring out everything calling blah 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 and it's such a unique it's a really truly unique experience that you have and 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 a gift in many ways that you are able to share what that's like, because I, I really don't think that whether it's male or female, um, cause it's a lot more men now. Uh, I was, I was thinking of a friend of mine, he was home with the kids for a year and he jokes about like being the dad and trying to like fit in, in the conversations and then, and then kind of giving them the look. And, you know, I think that you have this experience that can be shared about you know the real difficulty that goes on with child rearing and and gender roles and the belief system about um and this is my next question for you the belief system about what the gender roles are supposed to be even if you're not doing even if you don't buy into them right in this in the case where you were like no i'm going to stay home with my kids this is what i'm going to do and you were ex- you decided to shun those roles right still, no matter what we have in the back of our head, right? In the back of my head as a working mom, I still have in the back of my head that I'm, I'm supposed to, I'm outsourcing motherhood. I'm supposed to be doing something because that's what we are brought up with. How did you make sense of how, how, or, you know, again, it's kind of a feelings question. I'm sorry. It's how did you on the one hand, grow up in such a a gender role world where, you know, thing this is the way things are. How did you put that, how did you put that aside and walk through that? What were the things that kind of eased that difficulty? I think for me, what it was is that I I, I had something I had to do. I was responsible for two little children. And a wife too. I mean, it's not just taking care of a kid. I mean, I, I was still, you know, cooking and cleaning and take care of the house. And, 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 you know, I, I had a, that was my place. That's what I did. And so I just did it. I've always been that kind of person like, well, why, why don't you just do it? You know, you see a piece of paper on the ground. Why don't you pick it up? Some people just don't know that. But to me, it's like innate in me. It just says, if I see a piece of paper, I pick it up. And the same with being a parent, being a kid dad. I just, this is what I do. You know, I mean, and I, I didn't really even think about the stereotypes. I didn't think about that stuff till later. Cause Lee would talk about it because I mean, she would say like, Oh, my friends, they all want to clone you because you know, their husbands don't do anything to help with the, with the house and the kids. And I'm like, yeah, I know, you know, I can do that. So, I mean, that was a great, I mean, that, that gave me an identity. Okay. Okay. So that's actually, that's great uh, feedback, which is like, I mean, I'm, I would feel exactly the same way, right? Like, wow, you have, (laughs) you you know, that is impressive, right? Because we're all begging our husbands to do, you know, any of it, uh, let alone all of it. So yeah, I could, that's, that's a good, did she struggle with it at all? Um, I think when they were younger, it was much more difficult. I mean, like she, she wanted to stay home. So when Liam was born, she she quit her job because when nine eleven happened, she, it just didn't work out with her company. So she said, "I'm going to quit. I'm going to stay home, and I'm going to spend time with Liam and and, and Michael and, and and be a mom." I'm like, "Okay, sure," you know. And so I was working part time, but I was still doing everything else. You know, I was still 
cooking. I was still driving and doing all this other stuff. And, and it was, she was home for like six months and she bought like her fourth glue gun. I go, you better go back to fucking work. This is not working for me. This is my operation. Okay. This is my deal, not yours. So go back to work. <laughs> and she's like, and that was when I, she, I think she started to figure out, well, you know, you know, maybe I don't want to be home all the time with the kids, you know, but, you know, Pete can take care of it. And, and so that's when she decided to start her own company her mom got sick too. So she needed like the flexibility of that. So right. starting her own company was perfect. And so I just, you know, I, I kicked her out of, kicked her out of my uh, operations. This is mine. I took care of it. Yeah. <laughs> and I still feel that way, you know, so like she would, when she was traveling a lot, you know, she would come home and, like, and start doing stuff. I'm like, what are you doing? This is, this is my place. Okay. I'm pick, I got the boys covered. What are you going to do with this? No, don't worry about it. I got this covered. Don't worry. Right. Right, right, right. Why are you trying to help? I said, oh. you, just, you just keep bringing home the bacon, okay? I'll fry it up in the pan, but you just keep that bacon flowing because we don't have any bacon. We're done. <laughs> what did your drinking look like over these years? Like, to walk me through the progression of it. So, when when I started, when I stayed home with them for, for about six months, and I kind of, and I had that feeling of kind of a lost identity and I was kind of eat, learning how to be a stay at home dad. Um, you know, I would drink at night. I mean, the kid, the kid, once I put the kids down, it was cocktail hour. And I, and I, I lied to myself when I say, well, I never, you know, I never, um, threatened them. You know, I never did something that would threaten their safety. I mean, I never, I, I'm going to tell you right now, I never drove drunk with them, but I was home drunk when they were there. I mean, so it's the same thing. You know, I lied to myself pretty well. I, I never smoked in front of them when they were awake, but when they were asleep or I was around the corner, that was no problem, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so then I got on like the schedules Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And, and, you know, that's when I would drink as soon as they were down. And, um, it worked, it worked for a long time. And then they started doing more stuff and they were, in, they were uh, busy with school and that gave me a lot of things to do. But once they were in bed, that's when it, you know the, the clock hit hit twelve when I went to work. So <laughs> that was kind of the way I was until so like the year before I quit drinking, like the year or two before I quit drinking. That's when I started having this monkey feeling. You know, I'm, yeah, like, yeah. I'm, I'm tired of being hungover. You know, I'm tired of having achy kidneys or tired of you know sleeping in the other room. And but I didn't do anything about it. I just said, you know, this is I don't really like this. Same with smoking. Too. And so when I quit, the reason, I mean, you know, the reason I quit is because, so we were on vacation with this couple, uh, and the, the husband had quit drinking like a year before me. So he, he, he was, his wife was hyper aware of drinking. I'm sure she was. She was big time. You know, she was a tough cookie too. She was a real tough cookie. And I mean, I love her to death. But she she was tough, and so she we were at this rental house up in northern Wisconsin, and I had been drinking Jamesons all day. So then, it, so I'm like, I better fill this up with water or something and see how much I drink. So I'm like pulling up the bottle, and she walks in and sees me doing it. I'm like, uh-huh. now my memory is is it, she's I called my friend Alice yesterday to double check is that what happened? You saw me filling the bottle with water. Yeah. I remember it as being I was going like this. I was chugging the bottle in the kitchen, and she walked in and saw me. But I mean, either way, I knew that she would say something to Lee. So I said to Lee that night, I said, we need to talk tomorrow morning. So the next morning we went down the dock and, uh, 
you know, she told me, she's like, I, you know, I can't be married to somebody I can't trust, you know, and, and if you ever drink again, I'm leaving. And I told her, I said, I will never drink again. I never want you to leave me. I don't want to lose you. I don't lose our kids. And, and that was it. That was the last time I had a drink. So for the first year, you went to meetings. And so were, when you when you stopped, like, what were the tools that you used to stop that were different this time? I think the biggest, the best tool that I had was my friend, Chris, the one who had quit a year before me. And we kind of made this this pact together. I said, hey, Chris, can I call you when I need to? He's like, absolutely, just call me. And, and so I would have a moment where I would think about drinking or I'm like, oh, I could just go to the bar and get shit days right now. So I'd call Chris and say, hey, Chris, how's it going? And we talk. And I, yeah, I kind of felt like, felt like going down to the bar and having some drinks. He's like, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. I go, you know, I think you're right. And we just keep talking and then it would pass. And, and that's, I mean, that's how it worked. And it still works that way. It's just less, there's less opportunity now. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the situation. So like when I, that I quit in July, I went to the farm a month later. But my parents. Your parents' farm. Yeah. With Liam and Michael. And I was sober. And there was a lot of booze in that house. Oh, and yeah. they were partying big time, big bottles of vodka everywhere. Yep. And it was it was a struggle for me. I know. I'm, I'm glad that I did it and got through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's not an easy place to stay sober. And I've been. No. Sober. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's, I've had some real close calls. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. It's, it's gnarly. It's gnarly. I've had some close calls there. Um, but th- I think that's also, you know, you learn, one learns, you learn how to, what your threshold is. And I'm not suggesting that people should put themselves in situations to learn what their threshold is. Cause if you're wrong, you're in deep shit. <laughs> you're exactly right. yeah, so it's not, I'm, that's not my point. My point is that you over the years, like I can go to a bar, but I cannot go to a winery. Like I, like, I cannot be in a winery. Um, I cannot be at anywhere near a wine tasting, but a bar the act, even though the activity is drinking, people are interacting with each other and doing stuff. But in a wine tasting, we're we're swishing around. We're looking. Yeah, you're there to drink, and you, and they make it look so classy, and they make it, you know, and and it's it's all this stuff. So they the focus is on the alcohol. I can't do that. I can't, and I've tried. And so there's like certain situation. I can be around marijuana, but people bust out cocaine. I I I need to get out of there, right? Just short story. One time I was in, uh, this is like early years, early twenties when I'm sober and I'm at a party and I'm in a room and they bust out a thing of cocaine. And like normally, first of all, I'd never be in that situation. So it was like a really weird situation. But second of all, I start coaching all the young people in the room on how, like what they're doing wrong, how to do. And my husband comes into the room, um, you know, we were dating at the time. And he's like, what on God's green earth are you doing? Get out of here. You know, and I come out and I'm like, what was I doing? But like, you have these situations you find yourself in and you learn like, okay, those, that's not workable for me. This isn't workable for me over the years. And hopefully you stay sober through them. But over, you know, over time, it gets easier, right? It gets and time definitely helps. I mean, I love going to bars. Yeah. Because, and I don't have to drink. I just love watching people and hanging out and talking to people. It's fun. I love it. And, you know, people go, I remember in the first couple of years I was sober, 
hey, is it okay if I drink a beer, Ronnie? Oh, yeah. I'm like, I don't give a shit. This is my problem, not your problem. Yeah. You do whatever you want to do. Yeah. So I was always fine with people partying around me. I didn't really care. And if it became an issue, I would just walk away. Right. Just as I learned from Peter Lowe, just walk away. (laughs) Yes. Walk away. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So our families have been friends for a long time and and uh, my dad worked with your wife Lee and and so you got to see me as a teenager and what's interesting is that and I was very surprised to hear that you were that you were sober. You know, you got to see my alcoholism and what it looked like and I think you were you were still in the midst of yours at the time, right? At first, yeah. At first, right. And, you know, seeing that from the teenage perspective, what was some of the stuff that went on for you? Like, was it not, were you able to see it for what it was or, or, or was that not, not obvious? With you? Yeah. You know, I, so I, I distinctly remember one time we were at church and I can't remember how, I mean, you must've been 13 or 14 or something like that. And and we're walking by the garage and kind of talking a little bit. And you go, yeah, you know, I think I'm pregnant. I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I didn't even know what to say. I'm like, are you fucking serious? And we just kept walking, you know, and we just kept talking about something else. And I'm like, I, I had no idea what to say. So I, I told me, she goes, well, yeah, I mean, she, she's been having some issues with drugs and alcohol. And I really didn't know. Oh, I mean, yeah. Okay, Lee knew. I didn't know, yeah. And then I learned more um, over time. And then as when I stopped drinking and then we had that kind of fallen out. Were you, when we had the falling out, were you drinking? Were you sober? Yeah, I was sober. Oh, you were sober. Okay, that's it. Okay, okay. And I think Lee and I talked about this um, recently just to help me kind of fill in the blanks and everything about how, you know, I, I asked you not to come to the house and drink. Told your dad and your mom I didn't want you to come over and drink, and then you came over and you were drinking. So I told you to leave, you know, and and, and that was it was hard and for me. It wasn't for me. It wasn't. I'm gonna be honest with you because I'm um, I'm like an all or nothing. If you if you either with me or you're against me, right, right, right. And so and I was like, well, I told you not to drink. You're here, just get out of here, you know. And, and I'm usually I was I'm not usually that kind of person. I'm not a, a confrontational person like that. But I, I think I felt so strongly about, you know, here I'm trying to stay sober myself. I want my kids to be safe. And this is this is a bad situation. And, and I know that that hurt hurt you. I hurt your dad and your mom, especially. I think that was very hard for them. You know, we but we didn't really understand what was going on. We all we saw was oh, she's getting ready to murder, man. She's just she's right. just fucking around. Right. You know? and that's, that was our thought because we were thinking like, like our parents did, like our parents would, would, would um, discipline us. Why didn't they just smack her upside the head? Why don't you just fucking you know, ground her? That right. didn't work that way for you guys. That was something different. And we just didn't know that. So that was why I, was, I said, no, you know, I want nothing to do with you. And, and it's interesting because I get like, you know, looking back, I get that. Like that makes, you know, I, you, someone's teenager comes over, you're like, no, don't, you can't do that here. And they do it. Like I, to me, it makes perfect sense. And I also, it makes sense from the perspective of like, what are the parents doing? And I know that my parents really struggled with many relationships who did not understand why it was that, you know, there was a lot of talk, like, why can't you keep Ashley 
under control or this, that, the other. And, and, and my parents would explain, well, when we ground her, she runs away to Mexico, you know, and when we do this, you know, she, we don't see her for days at a time. And, you know, we don't know what to do because letting her drink a beer seems safer than what she does when we try to clamp down. And, you know, it's, it's, I have a lot of compassion or empathy for what that was, must have been like for everyone around watching that because having my own kids, that's terrifying and absolutely terrifying. And so, but I think that it's a really good example of how you know, we're all going through our stuff at, you know, we're all walking through our stuff, doing the best that we can with what we have. And we're all scared trying to like make good decisions for our families and how pervasive, you know, my, I had no idea. And, it, and, and honestly, I, I, I didn't know that there was a falling out for a long time, <laughs> which is interesting. It, it wasn't on my radar, but I, I really just never understood why my drinking was such a big deal because my thought was, I'm just hurting myself. I'm just hurting me. This is just me. I'm putting this into my body. What is your problem? Like, handle you. Go away. <laughs> you know, like, go do your PTA shit and leave me alone. And I'm not hurting anybody. And when I got sober and when I look back, it's like the 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 thread of destruction of our drinking is so insidious. And I, I just had no idea that I could affect these relationships, like just no idea. And so I think it's really, you know, obviously it wasn't fun at the time for anyone, but I think it's really cool that we've all been able to come back together and, and in so many different ways, right. With Lee and, and all of it and, you know, talk about it. And I think that's what relationships are about, like going through hard times. We misunderstand each other at times. We fuck it up. And then we say, we're sorry. And we try to do it differently and we get, you know, and I think that's, I think that's important. And if you, you know, for people who are listening, if you have relationships in your life where, you know, they're important to you and you want to, you made a mistake or you, you want to talk it through or whatever, it's, I, I really think there's a lot of value in things can be repaired. Absolutely. And you, you know, I got to say that um, the times that you've helped me with my friends didn't always work, but I could help them. I could try and do something to help them. And, and you're, your information was like, was super helpful. I mean, it was not only for me, but for my friends and their families and stuff. And that helped me a ton. I mean, and I, and I think that's like, wow. I mean, what you've done is amazing. I mean, to, to go from, you know, an addiction to helping the addiction, you know, I, and I don't, I mean, I, I try to help them because they were my friends. Like when you talk about, you, know, you do anything for somebody you love, but not necessarily somebody you don't. Right. You're helping people that you don't necessarily love. You're just helping them because you, you have an incredible experience and you're, and you're applying that to help these people. So, um, I mean, it, it was really, it really helped me a lot. It helped my friends and their families. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. You, your friend, um, from high school, I think is the one that died. Yeah. He died of alcoholism. Yeah. That's when I really understood. I started to understand how, how like you said, it's insidious and it's just, it's so destructive. I mean, this is a guy whose parents loved him. He had sisters that loved him. He had kids that loved him and a wife that loved him, ex-wife that liked him. And he just, he just didn't care. And he, he had friends like me that loved him and he, he just, just gave up. He said, you know, I'll just keep drinking. And then he couldn't do anything. 
Because stopping drinking is hard. It's really hard. And, and you know, there's a great saying, uh, um, analogy where stopping drinking is like you're driving a, your whole life, you're driving a station wagon and you just keep throwing your feelings and your baggage and all this shit in the back of the station wagon. And then you stop drinking, which is hitting the brakes and it all comes back, right? It all hits you in the back of the head and at once because because you're not you're you're not stopping the pain by using you you're postponing it right maybe you're postponing it you know there's a saying everybody gets a sobriety date some people get it while they're still alive and you know they they you know you 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 get all this stuff right and the and those feelings come up and you have to you have to learn how to walk through them otherwise you will get drunk and i think i i my aunt who died um, so, you know, same thing, all, all the opportunity in the world, I mean, truly, and none of it mattered because they're just being sober. The idea of being sober was, was so, was more painful than any, was more difficult, painful than any scenario that drugs and alcohol pr- presented. And I think that's what happens when you get pretty far you know, you, you throw enough in the back of that station wagon for long enough and, you know, it's, it, it, it gets, you know, there's people who do it, but it gets very, very painful. And, um, and it's a, you know, it's, I I don't know for you, but it's a daily reprieve. It's a daily battle for me, not in the sense that I wake up wanting to drink, but that I wake up with my head and I have to do something with, I have to do something with the thoughts and the crazy and the the compulsive that comes up in my head in order to be in recovery. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I mean, every person is different and, and I can see how, I mean, some days that, that can be my head too. I mean, at night, especially, I have a hard time at night with anxiety. So I, my, head, my head starts to spin. I'm thinking of all these different things and and it's... I mean, now I have other things that I use just to deal with them, whether it's medication or or walking or something like that, which is, of course, it's much better for me. But it's, um, I mean, I don't, I don't wake up every day. Definitely, I don't wake up every day thinking about drinking or, or doing drugs or anything. But it's kind of like like when you think about somebody who who's who's dead or gone, like my mom, and I I remember her when I hear a song or I smell something and. You know, that's when I remember her. It's the same thing with alcohol. You're like, uh, I could be at somebody's house and they're having a single malt scotch and I can smell it across the room. And then, or, you know, if I smell beer or something, or weed or something like that, walking down the street of San Francisco. So, you know, that's when I, it, 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 it enters your mind again, it enters my mind. But then it, I mean, as the years have passed, it's just, it's just not there. I mean, and I really truly know that. If I ever drank again, I would die. I mean, I, I mean, we would leave me. I would have no kids. I would just sit down, drink myself to death. Who gives a shit? It's done. And so, so if, if I can avoid that, and that's what I've been doing for almost twenty years, I'm good with that. I'm real good with that. In the treatment and recovery worlds, twelve-step worlds, uh, smart recovery. You know, one of the things we talk a lot about is the necessity of community and your experience is unique in that you didn't engage in any of those typical, you know, you had, you had Chris, I think it was, and who you called, which is community. 
but you didn't engage in any of that, that typical community. And what did you use as community? Was there church or were there other things that you used as community in order to kind of stabilize yourself? Um, I think um, I, I like Lee was my community, is my community, and my kids were my community. I think that uh, church definitely um, is my community. It was when it was in person, but um, I like going to church because I'm not there. I'm not really a spiritual person. But I sure like shooting the shit with my buddy Roy at coffee hour time with the 49ers. You know, or sitting in church and hearing beautiful music and positive messages. And so I think those are all, that was my community. Because when I went to A, I mean, I did go to A. I mean, I went, like Lee was like, you need to go to A. I'm like, okay. So I would go to meetings. And they were actually at St. Paul's. You know, and that was convenient for me. You know, and it, but I, over time, I'm like, it's just not for me. You know, I mean. Everybody has their own story, but most of those stories in A are like, I, you know, I lost my wife, I lost my house, I lost my car, my job, everything. And I, I hit my own rock bottom, but it wasn't as bad as theirs. And I would think about like, I just, it just brought me down when I would go to these meetings and I hear all these bad things. I mean, there was positive stuff saying, oh, you don't drink anymore, but you had to, to get to that part, you had to hear 20 minutes of a story that's all sad and, and terrible. And I just, after, you know, like six or eight months, I just kind of told Lee, yeah, you know, I don't think I'm going to go anymore. He's like, okay, you know. I said, I got Chris, I got you, you know, and and I think I'll be okay. And she didn't have to remind me about, you know, if you drink again, you're going to, I just knew that. That's automatic. Yeah, yeah. And I don't usually deal well with uh, with ultimatums. That's the one ultimatum that I, I can accept. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a fair, it's a fair ultimatum. I think so. I really yeah. Do. I think a lot of people, I think one of the struggles with, with um, AA and 12 step is that, is that each meeting is autonomous and the meetings that I go to are, I'm very picky about and typically people with long-term recovery and, you know, 20, 20 plus years is not abnormal to have people with 30, 40 years in the meeting who are, talking about solution and who have done really incredible things with their lives. And so we don't sit in, we don't sit in this, in the war story of it. We, I mean, we qualify enough so that the newcomer understands that we get it. But I, I think one of the struggles, you know, and I've, I've had this experience now that I'm going to different online meetings and I, I recently went to, um, I was like, I need an in-person meeting. So I went to, um, a meeting at uh, Holbrook Palmer outside and, you know, I was the person with like the longest time there by a long shot. And, you know, I don't get as much out of that, I, you know, that me being the, the person who has the most time and experience, I, that's, I don't get as much out of that, even though I'm reminded that, you know, how bad it can be as I do in, in the meetings where people have a lot of time and, and, and share in a way that's useful. And so I think that that's, that is one of the, the difficult things is like, you could, you just, you can get something totally different at any meeting you go to because each of them are autonomous and some meetings are not good. I mean, that's just the bottom line, <laughs> you know, it's just the, you know, it's the reality of it. So I, I, I mean, I get that. And, and certainly um, hearing sad things all the time is not, not helpful. I didn't want to make coffee all the time either. So. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's shitty coffee. <laughs> well, in St. Paul's, you know, we would they would have their meetings at night, and I would be in the kitchen with some choir kids all the time, you know. So they'd come in making their coffee, and I'd kind of shoot the shit with them a little bit, say hi, and sometimes I'd tell them I'm sober and stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, that was kind of about it. They just did their own thing, but you know, it, it's, if it, I mean, it's, it, it, that applies to anything. Whatever helps you works for me. You know, yeah, yep. As long as it's not destructive to you, right? Or your family, or your friends, or society. You know, I mean, it's what I've found being getting older is that I'm much more, especially with Liam. Like I, for me, I want everybody to be part of the, our community of our world. Because, you know, just because Liam has a disability doesn't make him any different from anybody. He just does things differently. Right. You know, same with, you know, me that I don't drink anymore. I'm just like anybody else. I just do things differently. And, and, and I've become much more accepting of people and, and, um, and understand, trying to understand them. And I, it's made a big difference for me. It's, it's made a big difference. Uh, my last question for you comes a little bit about a different type of, um, I don't want to call it recovery, but a different type of experience, which is having a son who has a disability as the parent of a son who has a disability that will probably require you to take care of or help him for a long time. Um, forever, forever. Okay. Forever. You know, I think a lot of parents have that experience and I know that's incredibly stressful and, and, and there are, that's something they have to learn how to cope with. That's not something I've ever thought of um, in terms of like taking care of my kids for the rest. In fact, I think very, um, to be perfectly honest um i think very i think you know like oh this is a short period of time enjoy it but (laughs) but also it's going to be a how does that affect the way you see the world or think about things and and the difference between your experience as a parent with a disability and those who who don't have that experience it's definitely a uh, a unique club that's you know yeah. that I wish I wasn't a member of, but I am, and you know my life is so much better that I that Liam's in my life. I mean, he does, and that that goes for everybody he ever meets. Yeah, and not every kid with a disability is like Liam. I mean, there's there's kids who have severe disabilities that's very difficult. But to me, I mean, I, I mean maybe I mean, maybe when I since I drank so much and I did, I was did bad things that they sent him here and they said, this is where your responsibility. You got to take care of him. Right. You so know? you could never I, take your eye off the ball. And he, and he I, I really think that he was, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not a real spiritual person, but I think he was, he's here for a reason, a better world. And, and he does, he does that for me. I mean, who, who doesn't want their 19 year old, 20 year old son to say, you got to give me a hug before you go to bed, dad, no. every night. I mean, that's like, nobody gets to experience that. Not a lot of people do. And I really, I mean, I, I, I'm really blessed. I mean, and I I never really tried to think about the bad stuff when they're younger. It's much harder because you're so focused on, you know, they have to go to school. We have, they have to learn stuff so they can stay um, up with their grades. They get older and they need to communicate. But as they get older and you start to really see like where, where they are, what they can do. Like I used to, I remember he would get math homework at, from school and, you know, we'd sit there and do it together. What's one plus one? Two. What's one plus one? Two. What's one plus one? Three. 
I'm like, what the fuck? We just talked about this, you know? And then finally one day I'm like, you know, the V8 moment. I'm like, his mind can't process that. He can process that for two and then the third time he can't. Why am I, why am I sitting here fighting with him about it? And so, yeah, I think that that was a real defining moment for me to say, he can do what he can do. And what I'm here to do is to make sure he can do what he can do really well and, and to make sure that people, that he has an impact on the world, but also that people don't hurt him and take advantage of him. Yeah. So yeah. I, you know, if he lives in the rest of his life, I'm okay with that. You know, I mean, I wanted to be independent, you know, Hey Lee, you know, we can start looking, we could look for an apartment if you want to look. Now I want to stay home, dad. I'm like, okay, but you got to work. I tell him you have to go to work. You're not going to sit around and look at your iPad all day long. I mean, even with a kid with disability, you have the same issues. Yeah, right, right. They're not, they're not uh, motivated. They want to look at their iPad all the time or they want to eat shit food or they don't want to go walk or anything. They right. have the same problems. You're right. You just have to deal with them a little bit differently because you have to figure out, you know, well, why are you doing this? Or, you know, and... and so I had a flash when you're talking about the math and, and it's funny since you're saying we have the same problems because I had a flash where you're talking about the math and to Peter, my dad and I sitting at the kitchen table and pretty much having the same conversation that you and Liam did where he's okay, what's the answer? Yes. What's the answer? Yes. What's the answer? No, wait, what's wrong? You know, just the, the, you know, my brain not being able to compute. I think many times he, he probably came to the same conclusion. Like, yeah, she's just not gonna, it's just not gonna, it's not gonna happen for her. But um, yeah, I, I mean, you just, I think it's, I think the, there's some beauty in, you know, marriage. You kind of have the same, you tend to have the same roughly problems, you know, kids, you tend to have the same problems, siblings, you know, there's aging parents. Right. And, and there's some beauty in the ability to relate. And I, and you talked about the club you didn't want to be in. I didn't want to be in the drug addict, loser, alcoholic, you know, hurt people club either, you know, and, and yet, I have found being in that club to be such a blessing and such and and it has given me so much more than the people who had the things I wanted, like the name brand schools and who stayed on track and who graduated on time. And, you know, and I went and hung out with them and I was like, wow, I yeah, you graduated on time and you, you went to Yale and you, you know, are on, you know, 30 under 30 on Forbes. But I wouldn't trade what I have for what you have because you don't have the emotional, you know, stuff that helps you on the daily basis. And it's kind of what you're talking about with, with Liam. It's like you get put into the club you don't want to be a part of and you find out that, you know, the secret is that being in these clubs forces you to become the person you are either meant to be or a better version of yourself. And because you have to, <laughs> and, and, order to go on you must be the better version of yourself and it's it's truly it's truly a blessing for parents who are who have a child with disabilities and who are struggling with sobriety is there anything that you can think of that you would want them to know or hear from from you i think the uh, what i've found over the years is that the people who know the most are other parents of special needs kids or just parents in general and so if you, if you have, you find out you have a child with special needs, you, the best place to go is go talk to another parent. And, and you can use that forever because I mean, I still talk to parents because they have kids that are older than Liam. Like, what did you do? How did you get a guardianship? How do you, 
the special needs trust? How do you do all these things? And they tell me. And the parents are always going to have have a better understanding than a social worker or somebody gets paid to take care of your kid or a teacher or something like that. So I've always, I mean, I did that for, for four years. I worked in this family resource center where I helped other parents, with special needs kids. And I love doing it because I knew that that's the right way to, for people to get help. I mean, of course you need to like help filling out forms and knowing what services you need. But then you go to a parent and you go, well, what do I do when he's throwing a shit fit? And they'll say, this is, this is what I do. You know, try that. And yeah. sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But at least you know you can go to somebody. Because it yeah. is that, that is that exclusive club where you can go to people and say, I need some help. Can we talk about this? It makes a huge difference because we know. I think, and just thinking about it is that that was actually a lot of your community. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, it was all, it was all moms. But I, but I got these moms to make me cookies. I got moms to cook for me. I got moms going out for coffee all the time. At least like, who are you having coffee with again? Um, I'm eating Alice for coffee. Again? Like, <laughs> yeah. well, you're working and, uh, you know? Yeah. And I, now, obviously, they were not my girlfriends, but they were uh, they, they were my friends who, who could relate with me. Yeah. And, and that, was, that was my community. Yeah. yeah. And um, I still do that now. I yeah. still do that. Because it's um, it's really powerful. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's you know, I, don't know, I just I'm, I'm not the most emotional person, but you know, when I think about Liam and what I, what I've done with him and what I'm gonna do with him, it's like it's just great. You know, I mean, he's he's a cool guy, and and people love him, and I love him, and, and I love being with him, and it's okay. You know, whatever happens is okay. Well, you guys have done a phenomenal job with him and and with Michael and providing you know, the, there is the absolute best possible, you know, the thing about you and Lee, that's amazing. I know that you both did whatever was the best possible thing you could think of for both of your boys. And uh, that's all we can do. Right. Yeah. And and unfortunately there's a lot of parents who don't, and and that doesn't commute compute to me at all. I'm like, what? Why wouldn't the parent want to go meet with the teacher? And but then you say, you know what? They have their own yeah. issue. They have their own things they're dealing with. The way they want to deal with them, and that's what they always deal with. It. That's okay. Yeah, you know, that's the way they want to do. It. And sometimes I think sometimes with those parents, it's like they still haven't been able to, you know, process what's going. You know, it's like it. They should have, but they ha- they aren't there. And I talked to teacher friends of mine who are like, yeah, that I've been telling this family like you know your kids should be tested for autism and they're like refusing you know and and I always think that's crazy and you know I think when you've been through a lot of stuff you you start to go I get it sometimes you just can't can't go there <laughs> just we'll, cannot yeah. go there we'll get to it when when it, when the time's right you know and it may unfortunately may be a long time and the kid has a hard time but you know until the parents or the caregivers accept it and figure it out, nothing's going to happen. It's just, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's, it's like drinking, you know, you have to, you know, you, the only person who can make these quit drinking is you. And so you can't force parents to, to do things for their kids. They have to figure it out themselves. So, um, I mean, it makes me sad when I see it, but you know, it is what it is. You know, you just gotta, yeah, we help who we can. That's right. We help who you can. Yeah, well, when you're, you're going to be 20 in July, right? Mm-hmm. 
Incredible. Well, I hope that um, in July we are not quarantined at that time. And I, I hope you have spent that time reflecting on a wonderful last 20 years and hopefully 20 more. And, uh, and I love you and think you're wonderful. And thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad to, um, I, uh, I, I, when I first emailed you, I was like, you know, maybe this is kind of a different perspective. It's not, you know, and then I didn't hear anything. I'm like, okay, you know, and I, I emailed you again. I said, you know, my, I mean, when I was talking to Christiana yesterday about the, the hot shot. It was on like, I'm like, my story is nothing compared to that guy. I mean, that fucking guy, it's mean, crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. And so that's why, and Michael said to me, it was fun. I, I, you know, his dad, he goes, you, what you say is important. Yeah. You know, people yeah. want to hear it. People want to hear it. Yeah. yeah. There's not one. I think it's really important to know that there's not one way to get sober. And that I'm really important because if there's only one way to get sober, that then the possibility that it won't work for you is there. Right. Yeah. And if there's lots of ways to get sober, then, then, then there are infinite possibilities for anyone. You can do it. There's lots to do. Yeah. I agree. And that's when I started thinking about it that way, then I'm like, of course I should be interviewed. Yep. Important. <laughs> <laughs> you are important. <laughs> you were kind. You were smart. <laughs> <laughs> I, although I have to say, I'm a little disappointed you didn't start out with your tagline. Oh, I, I do. Beautiful people. You you dub that in later, right? I do. Yeah, I dub it in later, but it does. It's on everyone. <laughs> I listen. I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts. I mean, I think they're. I, I kind of look for the ones that kind of uh, uh, fit what I'm looking for, or or just one that I find interesting. Yeah, and they're always good. They're always interesting, and the people are. You, you let me like me. You just let me ramble, you know. And people will tell their story in their own way, and and then that's a great way to do it. I love it. It's just that's the true, true understanding of what somebody else's experience, and you just listen. It's kind of like what your I think it was um, your dad said that for me, I love nothing more than talking to people and hearing their story and having, having these conversations. And I do it all the time. It's just not recorded. And so when I had the opportunity to highlight and, and, and record some of these and, and share them with people that to me, I mean, that's not work for me. It's just not, there's no part of that that's, that's work for me. I mean, my, my producer, Christiana loved her dearly that she, she's the one that does all the work. I don't yeah. do I don't do the work. I really don't. I get to have it's it's so enjoyable and and um I you think you get to hang out with Machete. Machete. Exactly. That man is so funny. He is I was dead. He was I had no idea he was in prison. Oh, not only he was I mean his story. Murder, right? And yeah, and uh not only was he in prison, he was he was like I learned that there's like prison boxing, like there's actual ranks. He was like like there's heavyweight, middleweight in prison. I did, I had no idea. It just, I mean that, and that's the that's you know I get to talk to people like Brendan, who you know Hotshots. You were saying like my story is not like that. Well, I don't really know anyone's. You know, I don't think there is anyone who has stories like that. But there's also it's fun to talk to the people who have the stories that are a lot like other people's because you hear, you know, then you can re- like there's nothing relatable. Right about story uh probably why which is what makes it so remarkable that he's able to live through it but hearing the similarities to me is you know between the people who 
even, you know, people who it's not drugs and alcohol, it's grief or it's any of these other things. And they can relate to my, you know, they got sober, they got into recovery or they got well, whatever you want to call it in the same ways. And, and we can all relate to each other because right now in the world, there's so much division, right? We don't, we don't spend time looking for the similarities. We just don't. And I think another thing that I really like about your podcast is that it's not just about alcohol and drugs. It's also about these other um, addictions that people don't really think about, you know, eating or, or sex or gambling, because it's not really as prevalent as drinking right. and drugs are. And, and, and there's emotional, all those emotional things. And it's like, wow, there's a lot of other stuff going on, you know, and, and it's, and it, it, it's, it's, it's as dangerous as yeah. drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's pretty, it's cool that you focus on, it's everything. It's the whole package. Well, I, to be honest, that's also to make it so that I, I can't do, I can't do uh, only, I, I would never give you two, three, four seasons of only drugs and alcohol. Cause yeah. I, I, I'm bored out of my mind. <laughs> I got to mix it up a little bit. So. Get some sex stuff in there. Yeah. Come on. Anything. Make it yeah. Interesting. yeah. It's make it interesting. Exactly. Exactly. I'm always like, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it is, it's stuff I want to hear about my, you know, Peter does about like, you know, topics. He's like, God, it's like, it looks like your bookshelf, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Where do your kids get older and they listen to it? I have thought so much about that and I haven't, and then I stopped thinking. <laughs> I I suspect that you know having little boys. Uh, my mom was in Playboy and um and I know. yes and um and so like finding out about that and I you know very I was very interested in that and um and and I think little boys they will have zero interest in any of moms like hearing about anything to do with mom at if it's anything other than she's you know. My mom, wholesome. She only has, you know, been with my father. I, I suspect that they will, that's as much as they want to know. <laughs> and anything beyond that will be like, la, la, la. Yeah. Or wait till their friends listen to it. Yeah, well then, mm. yeah. That's whole other issue. Yeah. Your mom. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be, it, that'll be interesting. It'll live on forever. I, I think a lot about the um, the political things that, that happen you know, that get people canceled, so to speak. You know, what I heard, you know, you're not allowed to say like master bedroom anymore because that, yeah. re- no, because that refers, that was, the uh, master, okay. that was a slave reference. And so I, I, you know, I think of all the things that I am saying on these podcasts, hours and hours of, of talking time that in 20 years will be super offensive to someone. And, you know, that's the stuff oh, I, yeah. that's, I'm actually much more afraid of that than I am the, uh, you know, the, the gritty stuff that I've done. I'm much more afraid of the, you know, something I said is no longer PC. That's interesting. Huh? Yeah. Get, getting. That's, that's why I have Michael, 23 year old gay liberal man who he, dad, you can't say that. Yeah, yeah. And I know I can't say it. But I can say it in front of him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sometimes you just gotta, you know, you gotta, gotta do it, man. Gotta let I mean, it feel so good to just let it fly. And, yeah. And what's even better is with your kids. I mean, yeah. there's nothing better. I mean, it's 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 not mean, but it is fun to fuck with your kids sometimes. I mean, especially when they deserve it. The most fun. I, I <laughs> yeah. most 
fun. I, I call my dad all the time and tell him the the you know the jokes that we do, and they're only you know four. <laughs> so I'm very excited for the the the, uh, the joking and the razzing to come. Oh yeah, it's every day is a field trip. Yeah, that's what I tell everybody. I tell all the dads just remember every day is a field trip. Yeah. That's better than saying that every day is a death sentence, you know, or every day is, you know, every day is going to be a, like a day in jail. Uh, yeah. A miserable being in the place I am. Nope. Every day is a field trip, man. Yeah. Life is good. Life is good. Damn good. Thank you so much for being here, Pete. Yeah, you bet. So uh, I appreciate you listening and um, I hopefully that, that helps. And, you know, if you need anything else from me, let me know. Absolutely. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings, schedule, and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.